Welcome to episode number seven of the Journeyman Firefighter Podcast. I'm Andrew Zisk, joined today by Grant Schwalbe and Chief Mike Benedum of Toledo Fire. And we are talking about the events of January 26, 2014 at 528 Magnolia Street in regards to the line of duty deaths of Private Stephen Machinsky and Private Jamie Dickman, Dickman of Engine 3. And today we have Chief Mike Benedum. He was part of... Uh, one of three Toledo fire officers that were tasked with doing an investigation internally. And we have him to talk today. Chief, you want to give us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Good morning. Uh, or I guess I should say afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Mike Benedum. I'm uh, the battalion chief of uh, the training bureau with the Toledo Fire Rescue Department. I've been in this position since uh, this past January. Um, been with in the fire service for 37 years. I've been with the city of Toledo Fire Department for the last 26 and a half. Um, I've served um, most of my engine career on engine six on our east side. Uh, served uh, along the way as our captain of operations, captain of the Bureau of Professional Standards, captain of the training bureau for four years, and I've uh, just recently returned uh, from the line to uh, head up the training again in the, in the training bureau, and I'm really glad to be here. Uh, that's, that's a pretty good synopsis of my background. Um, as we go through this conversation today, um, I'm privileged enough to do so because I happen to have been, uh, one of three members, uh, that were, was chosen at the time of this tragedy to investigate, uh, what happened at 528 Magnolia from a strategy and tactics standpoint. And, uh, it was one of the greatest honors, uh, of my career to do so. Great, Chief. Do you, uh, do you want to give us a little heads up and, and talk about the two men that lost their lives as, their, that day and, uh, you know, their background and what they meant to the organization? Uh, first, uh, we lost two uh, wonderful members that, uh, that Sunday afternoon, uh, Stephen Mashinsky. Um, he was appointed to our fire department in 1998. Uh, Steve had an associate's degree in fire science from a local community college. Uh, I had the a distinct privilege and honor of working with him uh, occasionally, and I can tell you from personal experience that he was uh, of extremely valued member. He was a very heads-up firefighter, very uh, cautiously aggressive. Um, he absolutely uh, loved this fire department and what he did. Steve was um, a bachelor, a lifelong bachelor by choice. He was uh, probably the biggest fan of the Toledo Mudhens um, baseball team here in Toledo. He was a huge Detroit Tigers fan, uh, rarely missed opening day of either. Um, he was an extremely dedicated family man. Uh, he has a brother who is also a career firefighter, um, and he lived uh, very much for his family, his department, and uh, his lifestyle. Um, and it was just a firefighter's firefighter. Uh, he's, he's a person that I would have on my crew and go anywhere with at any time. Uh, Jamie Dickman, uh, he came to us. Uh, he was a rookie with us. Uh, he was hired in September of 2013, um, but he was not a rookie by any means. Uh, when he came to us, he had 10 years of previous experience. Um, uh, with a, a, another career fire department. Uh, I happened to be the captain of training when 
when Jamie came to us and he brought along with him, his training jacket was thicker than any I had seen. Uh, he was, he had certifications in just about every uh, discipline that you can imagine. Uh, he was one of the most enthusiastic, uh, dedicated firefighters I've ever, ever had the privilege of uh, meeting. He uh, definitely had the fire service in his DNA. Um, he was, uh, he excelled in our academy because he came to us with uh, 10 years of previous experience. Uh, he was able to uh, leave the academy uh, earlier than the rest of his class and, and get to the line uh, where he was serving with engine three. Uh, Jamie was married. Uh, he had two children. Um, his son, Grant, was one month old at the time of his demise, and his daughter, Paige, uh, was three. Uh, he was also um, a person of great faith. He, he played in his uh, church's band uh, and, and just had a really, really, really strong faith and was also, like uh, Steve, uh, an extremely dedicated uh, family person, uh, his entire family. Um, were, are just phenomenal people. Um, though his time with us was uh, unfortunately very, very brief, uh, in that brief amount of time, uh, he became very endeared to the few members who had the opportunity to serve with him. Um, and it's, it's uh, just um, been one of the most difficult tragedies that that uh, this department has ever had to navigate through. They were not just colleagues, they were friends to many. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, Grant. So Chief, can you describe uh, the events of, of January 26, 2014 for us? Sure, uh, that particular day, it was Sunday. Uh, it was a cold, snowy, icy, overcast day here in the city. Um, it was, uh, there was probably, there were several inches of snow on the ground. Um, the day was, uh, started out as a typical tour of duty uh, for us. We, we were relatively busy on the EMS side of things. We're, a, we're an all hazards department. Uh, so EMS was very busy that day. Um, it was just, you know, a little, a couple hours after lunchtime, middle of the afternoon, uh, crews were, as I said, busy. They were, Steve and Jamie's crew happened to be in quarters uh, when the call came in. It was dispatched as an apartment fire with people still in the building. And uh, there were several factors uh, that played into how this ended up playing out. Uh, station three, where they are assi or were assigned, was actually one literally one city block away from the scene. However, on that day, uh, their station was completely closed due to uh, a complete overhaul renovation. So they had been relocated to our station 13, which is on the east side of the city, on the opposite side of the Maumee River. So they had a longer response time uh, due to that relocation. Um, so they responded from the east side, um, had to obviously take an alternate route because uh, one of the other major factors in this case was the uh, drawbridge that was very near station 13 where they were and the scene was also completely closed for repainting by our Ohio Department of Transportation. So they took an alternate route, delayed their response, 
um, en route, the uh, responding battalion chiefs saw a large column of smoke off in the distance and in the area of the fire. At the first report of that, he was um, roughly seven to eight city blocks away. Uh, as Engine 3 and the entire first alarm complement arrived, uh, they pulled up Magnolia Street to here on this 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 fire building uh, was situated on uh, Magnolia Street and Huron Street. As they approached that intersection, uh, most all of the uh, first alarm companies uh, arrived together. When they arrived, they found uh, a fairly a medium to large uh, complex that was made up of the Huron Street Market. Uh, it was a mixed occupancy building. Uh, the Huron Street Market was on the first floor. Um, the second floor were apartments. Uh, that was attached uh, to what actually turned out to be the fire building, uh, which was on Division One, was made up of a, uh, a two-bay garage and a single apartment behind it. And right above that was uh, a single apartment. That ends up being the fire building. But as they looked at it, it was one large um, complex, multi-use, multi-entrance type, uh, type three ordinary construction sitting on that intersection. Uh, as they rolled up Magnolia Street and first laid eyes on the building, um, the majority of the members uh, commented that, or, or and, and wrote in their statements that what they saw was um, some very thick, heavy, gray to brownish uh, smoke. It was uh, reported that all that smoke was coming from Division Two, which led everyone uh, laying eyes on that to believe that the fire was actually a Division Two fire. Um, the smoke was described as thick, billowing, seeping, um, pushing type smoke uh, as they uh, came up to the intersection of Huron Street, the cross street, uh, they chose to come around the corner onto Huron so that they could see uh, three sides of the building before they uh, made or developed an incident action plan. They did that, uh, had the same type conditions uh, presenting on what becomes uh, site alpha. Um, that's where they positioned their apparatus. There was a one uh, story single apartment that was that actually attached the fire building and the, and the mixed occupancy uh, building that was the Huron Market. Um, that's where they first made entry. So before, before we go any further, at that point, um, there were virtually uh, just a couple of windows in the building and those were on division two and the, and the one um, was still intact. At this point, all the visible smoke is heavy, thick, gray, brownish smoke. Uh, it's all coming from Division Two. There was no visible fire. Um, and as they did their three-sided view, there was uh, no reported smoke or fire visible on Division One, further convincing them that, yes, indeed, the fire was probably on Division Two. They're still operating under the extra sense of urgency uh, that we would expect with a report of people uh, still in the building. Um, as they get off the rig, they go to that small one-story apartment um, and what they were looking for, and that's where they first made entry into the building. What they were looking for, hoping to find, was a stairwell to Division Two, where they thought the fire was. 
uh, as soon as they make entry into that apartment, they realize that it's a dead end. It's a simple, uh, very small uh, apartment. It was walled off and did not go anywhere. So they abandoned that effort, came out of that apartment immediately. That's when the officer from Engine 3 and the arriving battalion chief did a face-to-face, -face, elected to make, again, uh, the Huron Street side of the building, side Alpha. They then decided that the next best option to get entry to Division 2 quickly for uh, the primary search was to ladder the single window that was above the two garage doors. Uh, so they, uh, Steve and Jamie retrieved the ladder from the engine. They laddered that window. Um, in the meantime, Engine 13's company uh, was also on scene, and to collectively they were beginning to um, deploy the hand line uh, and back lay LDH to the hydrant, which was roughly 40, 50 feet away at the intersection. Um, so the window ends up being laddered. Uh, Jamie Dickman goes up the ladder, uh, takes uh, the dry inch and three-quarter line over his shoulder. He goes up the ladder, has hand tools. Uh, he takes out the window. As he is uh, going up the ladder, Engine Company 13 was assigned search and backup. Uh, they attempted to open the right garage door. It, was, uh, it did not open, it was locked. They opened the left garage door uh, as he ascended the ladder. So when he gets to the top of the ladder, he takes out the window and he makes entry. He immediately goes in the window, it goes to the right and follows the wall. It's only about a one foot, one to two foot crawl when he meets the what is, becomes the delta wall. He follows the delta wall towards side Charlie. When he took the window out, uh, the same type of smoke uh, came out of that window. It was uh, heavy gray, billowy type smoke. Um, as he makes entry, uh, Steve, Mashinsky then went up the ladder, uh, followed him in the window, uh, and they uh, started to do a rapid primary search as they uh, traversed back uh, towards side Charlie. Uh, Engine 13's company, after they got that garage door open, they went in. There was some smoke at the ceiling. Uh, they saw a very, very small amount of fire on the Charlie wall of the garage and realized uh, real very quickly that it was a very cluttered garage. Uh, they did a primary search of the garage, cleared it quickly, uh, and realized that there was fire behind the garage wall that was reported to the incident commander who was standing basically right outside the garage um, at the tailboard, near the tailboard of engine three. That's where he established his uh, man post. Um, so at this point, um, the officer from Engine 13 told his crew to keep the fire um, that was behind that wall out of the garage. Um, he went up the ladder, I'm sorry, uh, the officer from Engine 3 then went up the ladder in the window and he stayed right inside the window and was helping feed the line as Steve and Jamie advanced towards side Charlie. Um, the officer from Engine 13 then ascended the ladder uh, with the backup line and he's at the top of the ladder now and he's assisting the lieutenant who's right inside the window advance the line. Um, as that's occurring, uh, the officer from engine three who's just inside the window said that there was um, heavy smoke, um, very little to no visibility. 
Kate was low at that point. Um, didn't report hearing a whole lot, kept feeding the line. Uh, while that's occurring, uh, engine six has now backed into this small stone parking lot, which would be off the uh, Charlie Delta corner of the fire building. Um, from that vantage point, uh, you have a walk-in door to the division one apartment, which is behind the garage. And then there's a wooden stairwell that goes up the Delta wall to the division two walk-in door to the apartment above. So that crew uh, deploys an inch and three quarter hand line. They were assigned um, attack from the rear. So they take an inch and three quarter line. They advance it uh, dry up the stairwell. When you get to the top of the stairs and are looking at that division two door, it's a it's made up of a screen door, <laughs> excuse me, that opens from left to right, and then an interior solid core door, which was just a little bit ajar, and that was showing uh, some gray billowy smoke. Uh, so what they do is they open the, they call for water, they open the interior door, and it was roughly at that point that conditions uh, rapidly uh, deteriorated. Um, the smoke went from billowy gray brownish to a uh, very black heavy uh, pumping smoke out the door. Uh, there was occasional, they reported occasional flames looking out of the door and then disappearing. Um, at that point, uh, the firefighter on the nozzle um, had 13 months on the job. His first working fire um, He's backed up by an acting officer because the officer of their company was on the BLS transport unit and on an EMS run and didn't make the incident. Uh, he had four years on the job at the time. Uh, they choose to advance into that doorway. Um, as they advance into the doorway, uh, the nozzle firefighter sees Steve and Jamie crawl past him right in front of them, and they disappear off the wall into the center of the room. There was no physical contact or verbal contact made. Uh, the encounter was actually a surprise. Um, they did not, those two firefighters at that moment didn't realize that Engine 3 was attacked from Site Alpha. Uh, they reported that they just encountered a second crew to the incident commander. Um, it wasn't confirmed that that was another crew. It was a, just acknowledged. Um, Engine 6 then, uh, gets water, but it was very poor water. Uh, we had uh, the driver of engine six had 13 months uh, experience. This was also his first working fire. Uh, they did not have a hydrant at this point. All of our engines carry 500 gallons of water. So he gets some water, but it's not uh, of adequate pressure. But engine six elected to uh, advance. They advanced along the delta wall. As they did so, um, conditions were still very rapidly deteriorating. They encountered heavy heat. Uh, they saw a large glow in front of them. Um, and they also heard some loud, heavy crashing sounds to their left, which was later determined to be the collapsing of the Division II floor right off the Charlie wall. So, uh, excuse me, at that point, um, I'll, I'll, I'll pause the 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 advance of engine six and take you back to the lieutenant of engine three 
Uh, at this point, he's still just inside the window. He's now done feeding line. He turns around to crawl uh, up to his crew, who are Steve and Jamie. Uh, he gets about two good crawls into it, and he's driven to the floor uh, by a blast of really high heat. Uh, so he's on the floor. Uh, he's calls for water at that point. Um, we have a very experienced uh, driver on engine three. He sends water immediately without issue. Uh, as the lieutenant hit the deck and rolled up, uh, he had heavy fire over his head all the way to the alpha wall. Uh, as I said, he had called for water. He immediately then got up and followed the line uh, right up to Steve and Jamie. Uh, he finds them in basically in the center um, of the floor between the would be the Bravo and Delta wall right in the center towards side Charlie. They are also down on the floor. Um, firefighter Dickman had the nozzle. Um, the officer remembers that the water arrived at the nozzle about the same time that he did because he remembers the very distinctive sound of the line filling with water and hitting the nozzle. Uh, at that point, they have heavy fire in front of them and they have heavy fire over their heads and the fire front that was over their head is now coming down on them. Actually, at that point, the fire is only probably about three or so feet off their head. Um, he's also, they're also hearing loud, heavy crashing sounds right in front of them, um, but didn't determine in that moment what it was. So at that point, um, I'm gonna pause engine three's activities, go back to engine six. So they're on the Delta wall, division two, essentially right next to, a few feet away from, and to their left is engine three. They have the heavy glow in front of them. They have some fire over their head. They have super high heat uh, to the point that they can't tolerate it. They have poor water pressure. Uh, the nozzle firefighter opens the line. They said that as soon as the water hit the glow in front of them, all the visible glow and flame disappeared. Everything sizzled really, really loudly, and the heat tripled. It worsened rather than get better. So they, having no pressure in the line, um, elected to back out. They backed out about roughly five to eight feet, find the door, and they bail out of Division Two. Uh, and essentially what they do is they run down to the rig to retrieve a two and a half. So back to engine three, all three members, the officer, firefighter Mashinsky, firefighter Dickman are on the floor. They have a charged line. The fire front's over their head. The officer yells at Jamie, put some water on that. He opens the nozzle towards the ceiling and the hostile fire event uh, occurs at that moment. Um, the, the room lights up uh, the, to the best of our, <clears throat> the officer says, um, get to the door because as the officer called up to Steve and Jamie, he had caught a sliver of light to his right. He didn't know it was a door at the time, but he knew there was something there. He made the assumption it was a door. So that's what he, he is. And he made the assumption that I think that Steve and Jamie saw the same thing. So he said, get to the door. He bailed to the door. He makes it out the door. Uh, just, just by luck and the grace of God, he, he hits the door and, and dives out onto the landing and transmits his first set of May days. As soon as Jamie had opened the line, the hostile event occurs. Jamie slams the line shut. Jamie actually screams the first mayday. He just screams the word mayday. We believe at that point 
that Jamie stood up, turned around, and ran back towards the window where he made entry. The reason we believe that is because the officer who was uh, from engine 13, uh, he was on the ladder at the window uh, and, and had the backup line, and he had been helping them feed their line in. Uh, as this event occurs, heavy black smoke and fire comes out of the window. So much heat comes out of the window that he has to back down the ladder. He had on all of his PPE and his mask and was on air. As he's backing down the ladder, uh, he remembers uh, on, right on the inside of the window, he remembers hearing what he thought was somebody running. And then as he's going further down the ladder, just to his left, which would be in the Alpha Bravo corner, uh, he heard a uh, short, loud hiss and a really loud pop, which we believe was Jamie Dickman's uh, SCBA failing at that point. And uh, that's because Jamie was found in the Alpha Bravo corner near a bed that was there. And that's the only thing in that area that would have made those sounds. So in a really big nutshell, um, that is uh, what happened uh, to us on that day on Division Two. Um, Jamie, when he ran back towards the window, he ran into that bed that was in the Alpha Bravo corner. It was at that point that he screamed a second mayday. It was very, very difficult to discern on the audio, but he was he he made another mayday call and died in that spot. Uh, Firefighter Mashinsky was found. Uh, essentially, he died right where he was. He was the forwardmost member in the group. He was nearest the what became a hole in the floor. And uh, his microphone had keyed up a couple of times, but we never heard him say anything. So we don't know if he was attempting to communicate or if that was simply movement because his radio was on a radio strap on the outside of his bumper coat. Um, from that point on, um, the lieutenant from Engine 3, he made a second uh, round of maydays. Uh, RIT was deployed. Uh, Jamie was found first and brought out uh, the Division Two Delta door. And then a few minutes later, uh, Steve was found and brought out the same door. So before we get into any of the uh, RIT stuff, the, just kind of paint the picture. Uh, Real good description and a lot of information, but uh, th that second floor was roughly about 20 by 30, um, so 600 square feet. So we're not talking about a huge, huge area. Um, not at all. And, and looking at the diagram, um, you, you got your door on the Delta side, which is about halfway back. Um, Correct. A lot of times when we start looking at line of duty deaths and everything, we, we try to classify it as one one major thing you know one lesson learned from there uh this really was sure. a uh, the perfect storm of events that that just happened to all occur um but can you talk to the rapid fire progression aspect of this um and and what were you guys um have you done anything different since that point just dealing with rapid fire progression and fire attack well, we've done we've done a, a lot of things, um, and and so as far as the fire progression in this building, uh, as I described, as they as they were dispatched, again it was an apartment fire, people were um, trapped or still in the building. 
um, described the conditions when they got there. All the smoke and fire, or all the smoke, all the visible smoke was coming from Division Two. Uh, they didn't see any on Division One. That's what led them to believe it was a Division Two fire. Um, and essentially, what and what this was was an arson fire. By the way, uh, the landlord of the building um, had set the fire intentionally in the garage uh, on a shelving system that was up against the Charlie wall. And one of the things that allowed this fire to progress so rapidly throughout the whole building was this building was uh, built in 1837, I believe it was, um, before there were any building codes. And that back Charlie wall of the garage didn't meet the ceiling. So there was a gap, uh, essentially allowing the fire to go right up over the wall. And to give you an idea of how this pro progressed, the apartment behind the garage, there was a female occupant that was lying on her bed watching television. Her bed was basically right up against the Charlie wall of the garage. <coughs> excuse, excuse me. She, so she, as she's watching television, she heard the garage door that she had heard many, many times before go up and go down twice. Very, very shortly after the, uh, she hears the garage door go up and down the second time. She has smoke and visible fire over her head. She, of course, uh, panics. She has a male occupant with her. She runs to the back of the apartment, which would be sort towards side Charlie, yells at him to get out the places on fire and is calling 911 on her cell phone. She runs out of the building um, and goes up to the market to alert the uh, manager in the market that the apartment is on fire. Um, so the fire goes right over the wall, which of course, as I said, had a gap uh, from, it didn't meet the ceiling fully. It got right into the ceiling and cockloft of the apartment behind the garage. On the back of the building, uh, there was an illegal addition. The illegal meaning that whoever put the uh, wood frame addition on the back, uh, there were never any permits filed for that. So we don't know when that was actually built or who did it, or how long ago. Um, that had a um, shed roof on it. So the fire is in the cockloft on Division One. It goes right back to Side Charlie, fully involves the addition on the back that has a large void space or cockloft area. And because of the angle of the roof, it directed the flames right up into Division Two's cockloft. So essentially, as the first alarm companies are arriving, what we really have is a fully involved apartment on Division One that went unrecognized because we didn't uh, rule out fire on the first floor first. It hadn't broken out yet. There was no visible flames yet. Uh, we had the cockloft space uh, on the addition on the back fully involved, and the cockloft space on Division Two was heavily involved as well. Uh, but because of the conditions that we're presenting, all smoke on Division Two, we we focus our attention on Division Two. I should also say that as as the first alarm companies are arriving, um, they responded, arrived, and went to work with that additional sense of urgency that we got to get in there because there are people still in this building. Their primary focus was on search and rescue, and they focused that again on the conditions they saw on Division Two. Um, it was not until after we made entry and were advancing on uh, that, uh, right after we advanced into Division Two, uh, the Division Two occupant had walked up to 
the battalion chief, the incident commander. He points to the apartment upstairs. He says, everybody's out of the building, fires in the kitchen, further convincing the incident commander that they had a kitchen fire now on Division 2 that was probably extending towards Site Alpha. So the focus remained on Division 2. And um, so basically by the time Engine 3's crew gets to the point where the hostile fire event occurs, when they arrive at that point, uh, is they have heavy fire below them, in front of them, and above them. And that's how we get in trouble. Um, it was a very rapid progression. There were three pre-existing flow paths prior to our arrival. Uh, there was a large uh, vent on side Charlie's wall of the addition on the back, uh, very poorly done. Um, that was an airflow directly into uh, the apartment on the first floor. Uh, the Division II Delta door, the solid corridor, was a slightly ajar. That was uh, flow path number two. And then the third flow path was a um, cockloft vent above the window of entry on site alpha. Um, that's significant because at the time of dispatch um, and throughout the incident, the wind was blowing out of the um, south-southwest going northeast. So basically the wind, and it was blowing at 12.7 miles an hour, so the wind is blowing into the Charlie Delta corner of the fire building. And so we have a 12.7 mile an hour wind. We have three pre-existing flow paths. Then we arrive to a rapidly progressing fire. Um, and by the way, the, uh, the, the type of smoke that uh, the responding battalion chief saw from four to seven blocks away was a large column of dark smoke under pressure. Much, much different one minute later that they saw on arrival. It went from that large column of smoke under pressure that was visible against a gray overcast sky to light white gray billowy brownish smoke. And why, why do you think that was, Chief? Well, because we this fire was determined to be, it was a ventilation limited fire. Um, the only real functional window in this whole complex was on site alpha above the garage doors where we made entry. The other window was basically uh, still intact and not a, not a factor. So, and the, and the large volume of this fire on our arrival were, were, was in a completely confined apartment on Division One, and in the cockloft spaces. And we believe that the smoke changed so dramatically in that one minute, because from the time the battalion chief reported a large column of dark smoke under pressure to the time we arrived, laid eyes on the place and saw the light, white, gray, billowy, thick, seeping smoke, one minute. We believe that it changed so dramatically because this fire was in the early decay stage. We believe that it, had, uh, and, and this is we being the cause and origin investigators, the experts, believe that the majority of the available oxygen in this whole box was pretty, pretty well eaten up and it was going actually in the early stages of beginning to burn itself out almost. And then we arrive with pre-existing flow paths and the, and the wind and we create um, three more significant flow paths, one being the garage door on division one, one being the window of entry, and then the Division II uh, Delta door that Engine 6 made entry on. Those were uh, three gigantic flow paths that were added. So by the time we make entry, we have six 
significant flow paths feeding this fire. But to back to the uh, why I think that the, the smoke change is simply because it was in the early decay stage and then by necessity of making entry for search and rescue and extinguishment, we create three more and that's precisely the time frame when it got all the oxygen it needed, um, regained its strength and overran us. Now, shortly before, it seemed like only seconds before we had that rapid fire progression. Um, I think it was the safety officer reported a change in conditions and, and requested everybody to get out. Isn't is, is that? Uh, that was actually, that was actually uh, battalion three. So uh, typically, uh, Toledo Fire only dispatches one battalion chief to a, a structure fire, which is what we did. But that was battalion one. Uh, who ended up the incident commander? Battalion three had just, was on the in the road in the street, uh, in his uh, chief's vehicle, returning from an auto extrication incident. Uh, he was listening to the fire, uh, heard how it was progressing, and elected to uh, uh, assign himself himself to the incident. And that's how he ends up on the scene. When he arrived, uh, he went immediately to side Charlie, the safety officer. Uh, actually meets up with him on side Charlie. They do a face-to-face. -face. It was during that face-to-face -face that the fire actually broke to the outside of the building. Uh, and if you listen to the audio uh, that's out there on YouTube, uh, Battalion 3 uh, realizes that conditions are, are now to the point that they're untenable. Uh, he wanted the interior crews to be pulled out. Uh, so he elects to call the incident commander on the radio. He does a fabulous job of describing uh, the conditions as he sees them uh, and essentially uh, spent roughly 18 seconds or so describing why he wanted them pulled out um, and before we can actually get them to retreat, uh, the event occurs. Um, and so guys have a background of Toledo a little bit you guys fight a lot of fire so this wasn't the one fire of the year that the crews were going on um talk a little bit about uh the culture of uh you know getting water on the fire yeah so uh toledo's toledo uh is as a career department we we operate out of um 18 fire stations we do have a very steady amount of uh, firework um, we are are for the lack of a better term our typical bread and butter almost everyday fire for us is a single family residential house fire and that's a that's a great point um, so our our we have a lot of experience with that um, we generally do a very very good job with uh, single family residentials again we see those almost daily here uh, sometimes three and four times a day. Um, this, however, was a high-risk, low-frequency building. And in the moment, in the stress of the moment of getting in to do the searches that, that we absolutely believed were necessary, um, we didn't recognize this as a high-risk, low-frequency building. We, we were focused on search and rescue, and we went at this with a residential mindset. Um, we have always prided ourselves on being an aggressive interior attack fire department. Uh, as I said, um, 
with the single family residential. Uh, I would put us up against just about anybody. I think we do a really, really good job with that. Uh, so we have plenty of fire experience, the officer, um, both on engine 13 and three, um, lots and lots of in, uh, inner city fire experience. Uh, this was by no means their, their first fire by any means. Um, so uh, what we were doing that day, um, we were we were simply trying to carry out the primary mission of every fire department. We were we believe that we had lives to save, and we will most definitely extend ourselves above and beyond to accomplish that uh, task. And that's what we were in the progress of doing when this occurred to us. Can you talk a little bit, almost as a side note, what what kind of uh, target flow are you guys typically flowing off of your inch and three quarter lines? Um, is it common practice to advance dry or to go in windows? I know people are kind of don't have a really good understanding or that's more of a geographical thing. Can you talk about that? Yep, well, the, the, the GPMs are usually 110 to 150. As far as advancing dry, uh, we understand, uh, we, we try to leave that to the best judgment uh, of our company officers. Of course, if, if we have a serious working fire condition, and, and believe that we're gonna be entering a space that is immediately threatened by fire, uh, we are absolutely gonna have the line charged uh, and ready to fight the moment we cross the threshold of the doorway. Um, we advanced both of these lines dry. That is a, uh, up to that point, was a fairly common practice as long as, again, it was the judgments, judgment of the officers if, in this case, initially, um, the incident commander thought that this was just a, a little more than a room and contents fire. If we think that we can advance through a large portion of uninvolved building, uh, it, we have been known to advance dry simply because, and quite honestly, because it's faster and easier. And then when we get to a point where we can't see or, or have uh, any kind of heat condition, they would charge the line and that's what they, they did on this particular day. Um, but the standard rule is the lines uh, need to be charged before we make entry. That's why we want dry. Yeah, and I, I say that uh, people don't know that I'm I'm from just outside of Toledo and spent some years up there. And, and you know, when I was up there, it was it was common. It wasn't uh, not not meaning as a, a contributing factor. But what what kind of um, what kind of nozzles are you guys uh, are you guys smooth bore or are you combination nozzle or can you speak to that just a little bit? Now we we gener uh, there again uh, it, it's company dependent. Uh, mostly we are combination nozzle. Uh, some crews will have a combination nozzle on one. We have two attack lines on our rigs, uh, inch and three quarter attack lines, I should say. Uh, one is 150. Our lengths oppose uh, are 75 feet in length. So we have a, what we call a long bank and a short bank of inch and three quarter. Uh, one being 150, of course, and then the other 225. Uh, some crews will have a, a smooth bore on one line and the combination on the other, but the majority of our companies run with combination nozzle. Cool. And then you guys are also a heavily vertically vented uh, vent department too. I know there were some issues with that based on the on the conditions. Uh, can you talk about that just a bit? Yeah, we had uh, one truck. Uh, 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 platform truck on the scene. Uh, they positioned themselves on the Alpha Bravo corner of the building. Um, they got the uh, bucket up in the air, uh, but uh, they were actually downwind, and the smoke that was 
uh, coming out of the building uh, was blowing in their direction, of course, and they actually never made the roof. Uh, they were, and the, the main reason they didn't is visibility. Uh, there's a couple of uh, pictures that I share in our, in our classroom presentation where uh, they are completely enveloped in heavy, thick smoke. And um, so they were able to get it up, but they could not uh, make the roof uh, due to the amount of smoke. They were, uh, they, there was so much smoke most of the time that they, they couldn't see to maneuver the bucket uh, to get on the roof. Chief, we uh, spoke with Jake Hoffman of Toledo a few months back, and we were talking about how mm -hmm. some how the RIT operations are, are handled in uh, Toledo. And it was pretty unique. We, we kind of talked about it. We liked how you guys send two folks to opposite corners uh, to get a good, pretty good look at the building. Can you talk about the RIT operations that day and what you heard from the companies that actually put hands on the guys, what their uh, experiences were? Yeah, so, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh... – the RIT company was led by uh, one of our finest officers, um, and they, so what our RIT company does, we sent a residential RIT uh, response to this, which is an engine company with four people. Uh, when they arrived, uh, they bring up the cache of tools. Uh, generally speaking, uh, at a single family residential, those tools will be staged, usually off the Alpha Bravo corner uh, of the building. Once uh, they stage the tools, uh, they do a uh, 360 uh, of the building size up. Uh, they did that. Um, once they completed that 360, uh, what we'll do is we put a RIT member uh, or try to always put a RIT member on one on each of the corners of a building. So in a typical house fire, after the RIT team does their 360, determines if there's any softening of the structure that needs to be done. Once that's all accomplished and a secondary means of egress is established, uh, we will put a RIP member on all four corners of the building. And what each of those members have specific responsibilities. We teach our members to all of our members to be engaged thinking members and paying attention. Uh, and when the RIP members on the corner, they're responsible for watching two sides of the building. So with one member on all four corners of a typical house, we have RIT eyes on all four sides. And we base that decision on, uh, the fact that many, many, many times the first indication that we have a firefighter in a mayday situation is, is when we hear glass breaking and somebody trying to bail out. So with a secondary means of egress established, with RIT member on all four corners and RIT eyes on all four corners, uh, our belief is that uh, should a member uh, transmit a mayday and try to bail out on any of the four sides of a building, we will have RIT eyes on that immediately. The RIT uh, team members who are nearest the cache of tools will retrieve whatever is necessary, and we can go immediately to that distressed firefighter and go to work, and, and whether that's making entry or making a rescue over a ladder or whatever. Um, we place, generally we will place, uh, in addition to the secondary means of egress, a ladder uh, in the cache, tool cache, and uh, we didn't have this in place on that day, but we would now also have, uh, RIT would have its own dedicated charged hand line. Understanding that uh, the two things that get us in trouble the most are building collapse issues and thermal events like this one was. So we, we don't want to have to rob anybody of a hand line to make a RIT entry. So we now mandate that RIT has their own line. But on that day, we did end up with uh, members on all 
all corners of the building. Um, when we deployed for this on the radio, it sounds like there was a delay in, deploy in deploying RIP, but there was not. The reality of the matter is, is that uh, actually the RIP officer heard the initial mayday and the incident commander did not. He brought it to his attention over the radio. They deployed immediately. Uh, there was another company, uh, Seven's company was uh, essentially right down the road completing an EMS run. Um, every one of our members carries a portable radio and generally when we're on an EMS run, what crews will do is one person will stay on the dispatch channel to always know if a fire is coming in nearby. That's what they did that day. So they were well aware that we were in a mayday scenario. Um, they um, self-deployed, told dispatch they were responding. They arrived. And essentially what we ended up with was uh, an eight-person RIT team. Essentially what we did is we entered over the ladder uh, into the, Divi uh, the Division Two Alpha window where Engine 3 originally entered. Uh, the rest of the RIT team entered the Division Two Delta door. They basically came together. They did an initial sweep of the one big room. So Division Two was one big living space, and on site Charlie was a bathroom and a kitchen. So the RIT team uh, in this room uh, was was not very big, but it was very cluttered with stuff. When they make entry, heavy smoke, um, basically pre-flash over smoke still emitting from the window and the door. Super high heat conditions, zero visibility. They all enter. They basically do a sweep of the room, and it was nothing like we experienced in training. It was very uh, tense. It was essentially these members recognized that they were in um, conditions that were immediately life-threatening to, to them. Um, they were scared, but they were focused, and they did a rapid sweep of the entire room. There was no, you know, wall A, wall B, wall C, or wall one, two, none of that. It was a fast, rapid sweep, eight people under zero visibility and high heat, a lot of stuff. Most of the false ceiling had burned off and collapsed. So we had piles and piles of superheated burning stuff that they are trying to navigate through under zero visibility. They get all the way to Side Charlie. As, as they arrive at Side Charlie, the, they notice that the floor was, was spongier and spongier and spongier, and then they find the hole, but they don't find Steve and Jamie. So they think that possibly they fell through the hole. And you'll hear on the radio where they, they have somebody check Division One. Um, of course, they don't find them down there. Um, so they regroup. And in the second effort, they find Jamie, they remove him, but now they're out of air. So they have to bottle back up and go back in for Steve. And just moments after making re-entry that second time, they find him and bring him out. They found, they found Steve closer to the door, right? In the Delta side? Yeah, he was actually... Um, Kind of right on the on the, so, yeah, kind of in the middle of the room, but more, more towards side Charlie, just in front of the hole that was created in the floor. Okay. It, you know, we talked to Jake and we were talking about, you know, there's everyone's got webbing and, and has all these fancy moves to, to get somebody out of a building. 
can you speak to your members? Did they have any difficulty? I, I believe uh, that Jake said that some of the their straps had melted off. So um, you can kind of go through their operations. Did they just grab them? Did they have yeah, to absolutely. Have for challenges? The, yeah, for the removal. Yeah. So so what we do is each uh, each member of our department is issued uh, department issued a 15 foot piece of uh, webbing. And what we do is on one end of that webbing, we create a loop that you can fit a gloved hand through. On the other end of that webbing is a life safety carabiner. And every member carries that. Um, that is uh, department issued. That is the intent of that is a to be used as a last ditch effort bailout tool. But we oftentimes use it uh, to extend um, large area searches. When you obviously when you clip them together, you have 30 foot you can work off of. Uh, that's typically what we use them for. They did not use them in this incident um, that I'm aware of. What they when they end up finding Jamie, it was a fast, down, dirty, pat, kick around type search, trying to navigate through all of the stuff that was on the floor. And essentially, um, the officer who ended up finding Jamie found his leg, recognized what it was yelled it out, everybody came to that point. He, there was a lot of burnt and melted uh, stuff on him. And his bunker gear was essentially destroyed. The straps on his SCBA were brittle and, and burned off. And they had um, quite a bit of effort to get him essentially unburied, picked up and removed. Um, wasn't a whole lot that they could grasp onto. Um, it was described as being extremely difficult and arduous uh, to bundle him up and get a hold of him, not to mention he was, they were hot because they had been in a superheated atmosphere for a while searching. So they're hot to begin with uh, to the point that their gears absorbed pretty much all the heat energy it can. Now they're grabbing onto two firefighters that unfortunately and literally had been on fire uh, and their material is, is very, very destroyed. It was just a, a very difficult, arduous effort. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, as we speak to more and more people, I think there's a lot of good things out there to use and to uh, to be helpful. But as we speak to more and more folks, it's just you get your hands on them. You just got to get going. You got to make a move. Um, and I understand. Yeah, and, and at this and and at this moment, you know, and, and as well trained as I feel our our members are. In, in all operations, but very specifically RIT. Uh, we spend a lot of time, have spent a lot of hands-on time doing a lot of RIT training. Uh, and I, again, would, I mean, these, these members, these RIT members here in this particular incident, um, if you see the, the live, uh, we have video of the conditions uh, during this RIT evolution. Um, uh, the RIT rescue here. And I, I think anybody that sees that video would agree that the conditions they entered in uh, were absolutely heroic. If there was anything that was ever heroic, this rescue effort was that. They went into conditions that they said, if it wouldn't have been our own, we probably wouldn't have been in there. It was to the point that they were almost needing to bail out themselves. It was so hot initially. They had to flow water even to get even, even to get into the space. Uh, when they were in there, it was, their training came in. I mean, their training kicked in. I mean, it was, 
fast, down, dirty. It wasn't as methodical probably as it is in a training evolution under a lot less stress, but the stress was super high. Visibility was absolutely zero. They had tremendous um, obstacles. They had super high heat. They had fear. They had emotion. They had the stress, the anxiety, all the things that you would expect to go with um, this kind of an event. I mean, they, they knew, you know, it also the, the personal factor. They knew uh, personally who they were going after. Um, and they had an officer that was in there, as you'll hear on the audio if you listen, uh, who says, keep somebody at that window to keep us oriented. Uh, there's a lot of guys up here. Um, they, the, the efforts were, I don't know how else to describe it, fast, down, and dirty. Um, and when you kick in all those emotions and the heat and the zero visibility, uh, it's, it's just not, from this experience, it's simply not going to go like a training evolution does. No, absolutely um, not. And you're right. There's a lot of tools. There's a lot of ways we can package people up. But when you are still in conditions that could potentially kill you and the firefighter that's down is half burned up equipment wise uh, and there's not a lot to secure to and things like that, uh, you have to improvise. And that's what they did. They, they improvised here. Um, they, they grabbed them the best they could as a group, grabbing limbs and going. And that's just how it went. Yeah, their actions, it was pretty apparent just by reading the NIOSH. Uh, you know, investigation that what they did was was heroic and uh, the conditions they had to face. So we wanted to hit on that for a little bit. Uh, you were tasked with doing one of the internal reviews, you and a, a handful of other fire officers with Toledo. Can you talk about what you guys came up with? Did you come up with any different recommendations that NIOSH came up with? Um, we mirrored most of them. Um, and, and here's the thing this, this timing, this fire simply had a lot of bad timing. We had, a, we had several programs that were, that were under development before this occurred that would have, had they been fully developed, trained on and practiced on would probably have aided us that day. Um, one of them, so there were three people, myself, uh, the battalion chief of training at the time and the deputy chief of training, we were assigned uh, to investigate this incident uh, from a strategy and tactics standpoint. Uh, that alone, uh, it was one of the learning points for us. Um, prior to this event, we had not had a fire ground line of duty death for 45 years. So we had a, a long stretch of, of whatever you want to call it, good luck, good fortune to not have this happen to us. Um, we... So not having had one for 45 years, essentially from the fire chief on down at the time, none of us had ever experienced this type of event, a fire ground line of duty death. To be honest with you, um, this was one of the things that I think we all as firefighters know in the back of our heads could happen, but it certainly was not on our radar. Um, Honestly, when this event occurred, we didn't have an effective response plan for such an event. Um, so we ended up having to um, basically wing how we handled this from the moment it happened. 
Um, we were not assigned to investigate this until actually three months after the event. So the three of us, or myself for sure, had were, were, we were never even actually on the fire scene as it looked that day. Uh, we worked with the cause and origin investigators and the law enforcement agencies that were involved to get the science portion of this correct. Um, but that's, again, one of the things that we learned uh, now we understand that we have to have a plan for responding to a serious injury or line of duty death. And we have that now. Um, during the uh, course of this internal investigation, uh, we put together a serious injury line of duty death response plan. And we knew that we didn't have to recreate that wheel. Uh, we used the IAFF, the IAFC, and the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation plans as our three templates. And then we created our own customized plan, and that's been uh, developed. It's, I believe, 33 pages long. It's trained on, it's dispersed, and we at least now have a plan to immediately respond internally to an event like this. So that's that's one of the lessons we learned and, and, and I hope we've improved on. Uh, fortunately, I'm just, obviously, it's something we hope we never have to test again, but um, uh, the Programs that we had underway when this occurred, we had a first duty fire ground size up program that uh, focused on a standardized approach to size up, a standardized approach to radio reporting, initial and follow up radio reports. That was all underway, uh, but not in place at that time. Uh, we were following all of the UL NIST studies on modern fire behavior. Um, as you probably know, when uh, they were completing those studies and putting out online courses, we were providing those online courses to our members to take as uh, continuing education. But um, we didn't have, obviously this happened in the middle of all of that uh, study. Uh, so we didn't have a full and complete understanding of, of what UL and NIST has learned. We do now. Um, we were redeveloping our entire RIT program at the time of this event. Uh, and I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, on this day, the only crew that was mandated to do a 360 size up was RIT. RIT did do a 360 on this event, but what we recognize and realize is by the time RIT arrives and completes their 360, it's generally too late because we already have crews committed to the interior like we did here. When RIT completed their 360 here, Steve and Jamie were moments away from uh, their demise. And we recognize that's too late. Current day, first arriving company officer, first arriving safety officer or the RIT team and the first arriving battalion chief are required to do their own 360s. So four 360 size ups are done now. And of course we always have a roaming safety officer that's got constant safety lens, lens uh, on the fire. Uh, those are some of the, the, the key differences between that day and what we do currently. Um, RIT now, if we have a larger commercial building like that, we will double the size of our RIT team uh, from four to eight uh, minimum. Um, our Mayday management program, we, had, we were also in the process of redoing the way we manage Maydays. In fact, um, I was the captain of training at the time. We had just completed our complete Mayday overhaul. SOP was done, training plan was done. On the Friday before this fire, Myself and the chief of training 
presented the new May Day management program to the chief of the department and his command staff. He had approved us to begin training the department on the May Day management program the following Monday, January the 27th. And then this fire hit on the day before on Sunday. That whole training program then got put on the back burner for nearly two years because of this event. So there, there have been a lot of operational changes. Uh, we've introduced uh, a transitional attack program and that, that uh, has been working very well for us. Um, we now train on high risk. Uh, we, we focus more on high risk, low frequency, not only high risk, low frequency incidents, but high risk, low frequency tactics. For example, in this fire, making entry over a ladder into a division two window for search, rescue, and fire suppression is a high risk, low frequency tactic for us, something that we rarely ever do. Yet that's the tactic we chose to make entry into this building. And we've learned that the way we did that, it may have been, may have been better before we made entry if we would have had a charge line and introduced a straight stream into the ceiling of that room uh, before we made entry, we don't know. And it would be speculation to guess if that would have made a difference. But we didn't do that that day. And if we were gonna be faced with the same situation today, we would we trained to introduce um, a hose stream into those conditions before we make entry to clear the overhead before we go in. Got it. I, I think you hit really the majority of the lessons learned. Uh, one other question I wanted to ask, you know, you described Toledo as a aggressive interior fire department. Has the culture changed much since the events of Magnolia Street? It, it seems like they've they more or less stayed the same. You guys have just changed a few things, but has anything really changed in terms of the culture? Um, the overall view of being an interior uh, aggressive interior attack fire department, absolutely not. We still are. In fact, um, uh, it was just a month ago, maybe, that um, we had a serious working house fire uh, right after shift change. Uh, long story short, we made a, a rescue uh, of an unconscious occupant. Uh, that occupant today is alive and well. Uh, and that's only due to an aggressive interior attack search and rescue mindset. Uh, that has not changed. We, we, we remain uh, aggressive. I think the biggest difference between now and then is we have just introduced um, uh, organized, standardized way to size buildings up. Our, our process for sizing up every structure that is reported to be on fires from the foundation up. First thing we want to know is, is, does, is this building on a basement and is that basement on fire? In other words, we, we make every attempt now to rule out fire in the lowest ground floor first and we try to clear the overhead before we commit to a space every single time, whether that's with a pike pole to see if there's fire above the cockloft or if conditions um, resemble what we saw in Magnolia that day, we'll use a, a hose string. Uh, I think we're much more organized in our size up. We're much more organized in our communications. We're much more organized in our writ efforts. Uh, we're much more, um, uh, we are, I think our situational awareness to when we are arriving to a high risk, low frequency building and fire is much more center stage. Uh, everything we do, I think now is much more standardized and coordinated. And 
we are simply um, an aggressive interior tech department that is cautiously aggressive. I don't think we've slowed down at all. I think we're just smarter and more cautious. And um, it's, it's paid dividends quite a few times since this fire. Uh, I think those are the, the major differences, but absolutely not. We are a department who we are, it's a survivable space unless it's 100% on fire. It is a potentially survivable space until we prove otherwise. That's our mindset. And we're just going to go at it very aggressively, but intelligently. Well, I think it's awesome that you guys not only did the internal study, that you've shared it everywhere. I know we were able to have you down in, in Florida uh, in January, and you did the four-hour lecture. And I tell you, when you hear the story and you see the pictures and you hear the radio traffic, it, it's, it's huge. It's huge. It's uh, powerful. I know it left an impression on uh, all the people that took took the class. Um, I definitely appreciate that Chief Bird and Chief Kaminsky allow you to to get out there and do that. Is there anybody else that we need to thank for uh, for just promoting this and allowing you to get out there and, and get everywhere? Well, those those two those two chiefs, uh, Chief Bird being our our newest and current fire chief, and Chief Kaminsky. Um, my direct boss uh, are certainly to be thanked for this, uh, and I have to give um, props also to Chief Santiago, the fire chief at the time of this event, because he is the fire chief who originally uh, elected to uh, take a very transparent and open approach to this. Um, you know, we 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 feel like we are are one of the best fire departments in the country. We feel that we are. Um, uh, that we live up to the the core mission of the fire service. Uh, I, as I said earlier in this in this uh, conversation, uh, I put our people up the, uh, against the best in the country. Uh, they, I think, on a day to day basis, we do an absolutely fabulous job of of being aggressive, being intelligently aggressive. I know that we make a difference. I know that we're saving lives. We just saved one the other day that I gave you a reference to. Um, so. Hats off to them. Uh, we, we know, though, as, as good as we think we are, we know that we are far from the best. We know that, we, uh, that every day has to be a training day and that, that we can never, ever uh, let our guard down and that, that we have to constantly uh, hone our skills and train. And we train hard here every day. We have, we have trainers out in the field. We're developing a field training officer program. Uh, we're... we're attempting to develop our own command training center so that we can constantly manage not only day-to-day -day operations, but mayday operations. You know, we have a integrated dispatch system here. They're a very critical and important role in what we do. And uh, we have to ensure that, that should we have to, to respond to a mayday, that we have, we have the resources to back that up. Um, and through this event, this was, this is, been one of the most difficult things I've done in the 37 years I've been in the fire service. I'm, I'm sure I speak for our entire department. This, this incident, uh, it's a club you don't want to belong to. Um, you know, I'm, there were some of us who thought, well, that doesn't happen here. Uh, it's never happened here in our career. Well, it did. And it took, you know, two really, really, really awesome human beings from us. Well, and we definitely appreciate you guys sharing the story and, and we want to share it for 
people all over to hear, uh, just to remember Steve and Jamie and let their deaths not be in vain. Um, where can uh, you, you're going to be at FDIC this year, right? So if people want to hear more. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm doing an abbreviated class on this. I'm doing an hour and a half lecture on Friday uh, morning. Uh, it's going to be more a, a short synopsis of what happened on Magnolia, yet uh, the main focus of the class is going to be on uh, the specifics of the lessons learned and the programs that we've implemented since. And I, so, so yes, I, I, if, if you have uh, the time and desire, I hope to see you at FDIC in my class. Again, that'll be on Friday uh, morning. I believe it's from 1030 to noon. And uh, if you uh, are good enough to come, I would love to meet you and have any further sidebar discussions that you want to have. I just, I, I want to add uh, to what I was saying um, about our department. Um, you know, we, we did learn a lot here. We know that we're not perfect. We know that, that there was a lot of improvement to be needed. And that's one of the reasons we decided to be so transparent and share our story with anybody that wants to listen, because I think it's, I think we're much smarter and much safer together. And I can assure you that, that uh, uh, regardless of the tragic, tragic outcome of this incident, uh, I, I remain very proud of the members who responded that day um, because can we always improve what we do? Is there always a better way? Probably. But I can assure you this, every one of the members that went to 528 Magnolia that day did so with a complete and total dedication of trying to carry out the primary mission of the fire service. We were trying to save lives that day. Did the, did the a lot of little things come together to, to, to do what it did to us? It did. It was not one catastrophic event that day that, that got Steve and Jamie. It was a combination of a lot of little things that came together, but I remain very proud of their effort. Uh, they, they were being aggressive, trying to save lives. And uh, my hat's off to them. And uh, again, I thank you two for the opportunity to share the story today. And I look forward to the opportunity to share it with anybody that wants to listen. Chief, uh, our, our hats are off to you. Uh, Jake Hoffman initially told us to get up with you a few months ago, said you had the most intimate knowledge of this incident, uh, really struck a chord with Grant and I and Kyle, who's working today. He can't join us. Um, I've reviewed this line of duty death several times now. And it's been in the back of my head for years uh, since initially when I read it. Um, we certainly want to thank you for your time, the hard work you've put into this incident, and clearly the hard work you're putting into the, the training and, and membership of the Toledo Fire Department. It's, it's nice to see that the culture hasn't changed much, and you guys are doing the right things by not only the members, but by some might argue more importantly, the citizens. So we want to thank you for that, what the members of the Toledo Fire Department are currently doing. And thank you for pushing the fire service forward, Chief. And with that, we are going to wrap up, and we will see you guys next time on the Journeyman Firefighter Podcast.